0: The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walk this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to the Business of You. I have so many more questions about the mill, but um, this podcast is the business of you. So I do want to turn, turn the, the uh, attention back to you. And, um, and I am the mill. (laughs) Well, you're right, right. It's the founder founding director. You absolutely are. So thank you for that. Perfect segue. What attributes of your personal brand do you feel have been most useful to you in creating the mill?
1: Yeah. Wow. Wow. That one was, that's a good one. Um, I think some of the things that I spoke about earlier about my life's journey um, about being men and women for others is, is a core feature of my brand because what this means is that whatever we do um, either through the mill is and, and who I am as a person is living a life of servitude, a life of service that 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 I, I want to serve people. I, I, I really do. And there are different ways in which you can serve people. So I think one of my personal brands is to serve people. And and sometimes, you know, you know, family members or I don't mean to call it any particular person, but it takes a lot from me because as when you're serving others. Sometimes you don't get to serve yourself and you don't get to serve the immediate family and you get stretched. And so from a professional branding standpoint, you know, I oftentimes say that my greatest strengths are my greatest weaknesses. And so that is one area in which living a life of service, service, which I consider as a strength or a core feature of my brand, in many ways has some downfalls. I think also some other areas of my own brand is that I am an expansive thinker. I am innovative. And there's no reason why that there is an I in the mill because that's me, innovate. I love to innovate. You know, I oftentimes tell people, you know, people are like, oh, so how did you become an innovator? And I said, well, when you grew up in a, you know, kind of a, you know, poor working class family, You've had to innovate to make life be easier, right? You have to come up with different things. And so, for example, I oftentimes use this thing. Like, I love to cook, but I'm not one of those people where I can follow recipes. I'm horrible at that. Maybe because I'm a guy, sorry to subscribe to gender roles, but I I just cannot like I cannot bake to save my life. Uh, following instructions. I don't know what's a tablespoon from a teaspoon or <laughs> those kinds of things. But what I do love is when I'm in that mindset of innovating, I was like, oh, we have this, we have that, and we create this massive concoction. And in many ways, that's part of our brand taking things that may actually have one use. And when you transpose it to another era, it just the use is just multiplied. And that's what part of my brand is where, you know, not only am I innovative, but, you know, I try to remain versatile. I also, you know, stay very hungry. Hungry because one, I think I'm secretly competitive because I love excellence. I want whatever we're doing to be great. And so in order to do that, you you just have to, you know, I'm always learning new things. And I put myself in uncomfortable situations where I am always a student. So it's oftentimes when people get to a certain level and they are the leader that they, they, they get a little bit, they lose certain intellectual muscles, right? And for me, it's important that in order to stay sharp, you have to force yourself to be a student in certain ways. And, and that's, in many ways, that's how I lead, actually. So I tell my my staff oftentimes that part of your job for perhaps 70, 80% of your job will entail things that we know you're great at. You just have to shine and be excellent and optimize that. But we deliberately make 20 to 30% of other tasks and responsibilities challenging, things that will jump the curve, things that will you know, um, it, you know, help them to get to the next level. I oftentimes tell him, you know, my, you know I, I stole this from my father. in law, you know, dress for the job that you want. And I've kind of morphed that and said, you know, like act in the role that you want, right? The one that you aspire for. And then the last brand that I think, you know, feature that I have is that I try to be very prescient not clairvoyant, but I like to see around the corner because that's what innovation means. And over these past few years, you know, the establishment of the mill and the millbox, things that are just so mind-bending, what we've done is this. We have taken the risk and we have casted our net ahead of us. And what we've tried to do is to catch up because typically people say, no, well, you, you, you wanna be very, very, very precise. Don't overpromise, which we don't, but to innovate, right? To to, to do bold things, you have to throw past that marker forward and then chase it. And therefore, when you're constantly chasing your goal and you're constantly chasing that vision or that idea, then you will always stay ahead of the curve. And that's kind of the core areas of, you know, my brand. And, and, and I guess some people call me authentic too, right? We, we want to ensure that we stay authentic and true um, to, to who I am um, because it's a life field of service.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You always strike me as such an optimistic, positive person. What is yes. it that keeps you kind of, you know, overcoming adversity and, you know, various aspects of your life? And I assume even starting a, Media and Innovation Lab, an yeah. organization. You know, universities are so bureaucratic, right? And I, yeah. I grew up in the higher ed world, so I know that. Yes. But um, how? So, what keeps you persevering? What keeps you overcoming, especially doing something right? yeah. innovation related, right? Innovation yeah. moves at like a very high you know, very fast rate where universities can go at a much slower rate. So how, how, do, you, how do you manage that? What keeps you, know, you going? Good
1: question. That's an excellent question. All your questions I mean, excellent, but this one is a doozy. Um, I, you know, several things, and I'm just going to throw them out off the cuff, not in a particular sequential order. Um, and, and this is kind of what people have kind of shared with me. I have this unrelenting stamina. Um, you know, uh, you know, I do a lot of sleep work, and people are like, "Oh, it's as if you don't rest." And I'm like, "No, it's not that. I just don't have hobbies. <laughs> really, you know, I'm super focused. I'm focused on my family <laughs> and friends, and I'm focused on my work. Um, so, so that's kind of one thing. Um, just stamina. But in terms of the optimism, uh, I, I. I have to be careful how I say this, because that doesn't mean that I don't get down. I've gone through a lot, but but not to sound cheesy, in every in, in my darkest moments, the one thing I always remind myself there is tomorrow. I, I tell myself this simple thing. So when my grandmother who raised me, um you know she was battling cancer and i was there at the bedside and everything and just utterly felt like this was the closure of my world because my grandmother like raised me like really raised me and my mom raised me as well but my my mom my grandmother was very very close she was like the matriarch and the patriarch of the family you know the the the, the the physical strength and the visceral strength and the emotional fortitude and strength that I have, I, I really take from her, you know, because she was really a lioness, you know, um, and, and 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 I just felt like, you know, for her, you know, I, I had to be that way. And when she passed away, I felt really dumb, you know. I felt sad. I felt depressed. I felt like I didn't grieve adequately because it was a time when I was in grad school. I just had started grad school. And, you know, it's like, no, like this can't be happening. And I know this is something that she would want. I have never seen her flinch. There was always tomorrow for her. There was always tomorrow. and And what I did was I kind of sucked up all the bad feelings and I sucked up the valley that I was in. And I distracted myself a little. I know I'm not endorsing any sitcom, but I watched a lot of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air during that time because it made me laugh. And I try, my mantra is, especially in our family, we try and have fun and we try and have belly laughs at least once a day. Because it's curative. I truly believe so. You know, I'm not immune to stress. I'm not immune to hardships or being down, but I, I, there is a tomorrow. And then the last thing keeps me optimistic is the fact that I know that it's not about me. The moments when I feel like I've really been in a pit. It's when I have felt like I have failed or when I feel like the success of something, everything, the onus was on. And this is where my faith comes in. That I oftentimes tell myself and I pray a lot. I oftentimes say my life is victorious. I always tell myself that. My life is victorious. And what is victory? It means you win at the end. Doesn't mean that, especially not to use a sport, a sports reference. It doesn't mean, you know, you don't make mistakes during the game. It doesn't mean that people don't score on you or anything, or it's not a nail biter, but you will win at the end, and I truly believe that. And I want to create pathways where people recognize that their lives will be victorious, and 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 that that varies. it it, it, it will vary from person to person. It's not for me to determine what that victory will look like. But to make people know that there's a tomorrow and that when all things are written, that your life will be victorious. And how what victory is for me is that I came here to do what I was, I, I did what I came here to do. You know, and and I think that's kind of not to be cryptic. I don't want to be cryptic at all, but 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 that's what keeps me grounded. That's what keeps me optimistic. Um, and 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 I I have this, I don't know, like, as I'm thinking about this, sorry that I'm rambling, but I remember my mother would always tell me if I had this kind of, a uh, like, I would not take no for an answer. I guess you need to have that <laughs> as a scientist because so many of our experiments, so many of our studies, you get a no or a maybe or no to this, but yes to something else. That's what this discovery is. So just seeing, and being flexible, cognitively, emotionally, spiritually flexible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that what that's what allows me as well um, to see to see things optimistically.
0: Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's a wonderful answer. Um, one other I thank one. Thank you. One other question just struck me is the the lines between um, funding. Right, funding, yeah. funding research, funding science, and um, things maintaining their the results, kind of maintaining their integrity. Those lines feel like they're blurring a little bit lately. So, how do you, as the founding director of this organization, again within an institution, a bureaucratic institution that relies a lot on on funding, right? You mentioned the NIH, etc. How do you maintain the clear lines of integrity between accepting funding from a large organization and and de- developing results that are um, independent? and transparent
1: and yeah. authentic? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easy. It's easy because uh, the culture of science is, is peer review and objectivity and transparency. So, and I think that's why it's such a wonderful space for me because those virtues are virtues that speak true to who I am. And, and so, you know, on a practical level, larger institutions like a University of Miami, they have um infrastructure set up where they'll help you not to blur those lines. And if those lines are blurred, they just want you to shear. Um, and 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 I think just from a kind of an external force standpoint, like like that system is settled um, because there are significant consequences because institutions want to ensure that they maintain a high level of reputation where they are trusted. And, 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 and we as well, so as scientists, clinicians, we want to be that way um, um, as, as well. But I think you raise a larger point, <laughs> which is, the, the, the infiltration of non-traditional funding to support the work. And I think that's where it's tough, right? Where, you, you know, not many people know this, but I'm going to let the secret out, that large academic institutions are corporations. <laughs> Sorry if yeah, I, I get too. in trouble. And and so for me, when I entered in this space as a scientist, I was like, yeah, I'm going to help people. I'm going to do science and we do do that. Then I realized like, oh, um, I need funding to support my team, to support my salary. Um, So it then becomes a bit of a business operation, not in terms of what the value prop is, because the value prop doesn't change. The value prop is... Can you investigate novelties around health and medicine and wellness? And can you disseminate those results for the betterment of public health? That's the value prop, it does not change. But in terms of ensuring that you have the infrastructure and the machinery to maintain that operation, this is where we've had to be very creative um, within, you know, um, um, you know, the the, the legal realm, um, as to how we can fund this. So, you know, you know, I oftentimes say this. You know, the funding from the National Institutes of Health really comes from the tax bills, um, from us, and so it's my duty to ensure that I fulfill the fiduciary obligation that the NIH and the citizens have bestowed in me to do the best science and to provide results. And when you publish these results, they're peer reviewed, right? Um, By my peers, some of the best thinkers and scientists. So there are different stages whereby um, you are forced to do that. So that's the external forces, personally. For me, it's not a challenge per se, but where I think what I am doing, and where the mill is unique, is that in trying to separate the two interests, meaning science and you know um, non-traditional funders, I think to be quite honest, some scientists have swung too far to the other side of the pendulum, whereby they're like, no, we don't want any involvement of big tech. Let's say that. And I don't think that is the wisest thing. Here is why. Because then it creates two factions where you're having a Meta, you're having an Amazon, you're having a Google, create their own health arena and not talk to people who are actually managing patients, people who are doing the science. And what we need to realize as scientists and clinicians is the fact that there are things that we're great at and there are things that we're not so good at right? And essentially what that is, is that I can run a trial, I can run a study, I can publish papers on right grants, but can I really scale something where someone in Kansas and someone in Venezuela and someone in Hong Kong benefits from it? No. This is where big tech comes in because they have the infrastructure to scale and to scale quickly. And, and I think, you know, not that, I think science is great because it provides, there's, 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 you know, science gives itself some time to ensure that the results that we have are not flukes, that they are vetted over a period of time. But when it comes to innovation and invention, that sometimes we need to do things quickly but we need to follow the same steps, but we just need to accelerate that. And unfortunately, the current funding infrastructures that we have federally, that the life cycle of those grants, and they're just not quick. So if you submit a grant, you won't find out, you won't get the funding until another year and a half. And by then that idea probably is no longer novel. And I think this is where through partnerships with other funding agencies where you don't have to go through the bureaucracy of an 18-month cycle of just getting the funding to roll out where you can quickly implement and fail and try again and iterate on solutions. I think that's where medicine needs to go. And I think that's what we need to do, be more agile um, about our interventions so that we can create more tailored, customized, as well as personalized solutions. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense, uh, the way you explain that. And the peer, obviously, the peer reviews I'm aware of. But I see the value of the partnerships you're suggesting, you know, versus, um, you know, shying away from them for for the potential yes, negative aspect
1: of it. Exactly. You, you have to. You have to grab the bull, by the more. You know, you, you know, so, you know, one of the things that I oftentimes, not I don't have spats with my colleagues, but they're like, well, you know, all they care about is data, all they care about is making money. And I'm like, okay, it's America. It's a capitalistic culture. So so let's let's not turn a blind eye. This is not politics here. Once scientists start playing politics and start picking winners and losers, that's when we lost the trust of the public, right? So sure. my job is to ensure that I am doing the most trustworthy science, and doing it in a way that I can provide the public the best solutions, the best evidence quickly. We don't have to wait, and we. And, 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 and I know this is a hot button topic, but I, I think the, the rapid evolution and creation of vaccines was a clear example, as well as therapeutics. That here is it that we didn't skip any steps at all. We just accelerated. We got rid of the bureaucracies, and we just. Had funding to actually develop these things. And I think that's a great learning example. Unfortunately, we had to. I'm not saying that it was great, by the way, to have COVID, but I think what it showed us is maybe we don't need to have certain bureaucracies. We still have the steps. No steps work, you know, like we didn't skip any steps at all. But can we accelerate quicker um, with our health and our science? I think we can.
0: Yeah, yeah. I have one more question for you. You are what I would define as an entrepreneur, right? You're extremely <laughs> entrepreneurial yes. within larger organizations. Can you share maybe your top two or three tips to other people working yes. in organizations who are just dying to innovate and take things to the next level, but are just not sure how to?
1: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's a great point, man. This is awesome, um, Rachel. This is great. Um, I actually, I'm going to credit you for that, <laughs> actually, because you have helped me big time. Now, and, I'll, and I'll explain why. I, I think the first thing that you have to do, you have to know thyself. Mm-hmm. You got to know yourself. Aristotle. So I, I, ex, Yeah, exactly. I remember, and you and I discussed this previously, where I was terrified to talk to companies. Um, because I, I would speak in ways as if I spoke as a scientist. I used very careful language, saying, "I think we're doing this. I think we're trying to solve this," and, and talking to 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 business folks that that doesn't work. And and when I entered those conversations, it's as if I entered those conversations as if I was asking for a favor, as opposed to being clear as to what my value is what my value could be, and actually being very clear as to why the two of us need to work together. Right? So for either synergy or complementary, or filling gaps or adjunctive or augmentative. And that was hard. And, and so I know you peered me up with someone like almost like an executive coach, and, um, and, and he was phenomenal. And, and he just said, hey, you know, l- let me help with how you think. He ch- literally kind of changed my paradigm as to how oh, I saw myself because I felt like, you know, I wasn't of value. I wasn't valuable. I wasn't worthy enough to talk to these folks or to pitch the idea. And not all of them I spoke to liked what we were selling and what we were trying to do. And that's OK. You move on. And, and, and I think that's, that's one thing that one, the first thing you have to do is kind of do a deep dive and to know yourself. You know, so what we've done is in our own group, we do a SWAT analysis on ourselves, strengths, weakness, opportunities, threats, and the other T because it's S-W-O-T-T is where do we fit in the team, in the landscape? And I think that's kind of what we've tried to do where You know, identify your strengths. Weaknesses are growth areas. Where do you need to grow? Opportunities, you know, paint what the zeitgeist, what the opportunities are, right? That you and that partner can seize upon. Um, And threats, what are potential saboteurs in the process? You know, if you're pitching an idea, it must have one, a thesis, and it must have a research question on how you're gonna go ahead and in that issue. It's, 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 it's the science of you know kind of building businesses. And if you don't have that clear for yourself, then you can't expect the other person on the other end to discuss that and to solve that with you. Think through that first. Of course it will modify, but if you're very clear as to what that is, then you're good. So I think those are some of the things that I would tell people in terms of how you engage you know, anyone, you know, and, and and we do that with patients, not just companies too, because we see them as end users, right? They're end users. We have to pitch it to them. We have to, you know, make it worth your while, you know? Um, you know, being part of our study, it's, it's no joke. Even if we provide incentives, I could be doing so many more other cooler things <laughs> than being part of a study. And so that's what I would encourage people to do Um, Know thyself Know what your value prop is It's an equal encounter In many ways An engagement And what that allows you to do It makes you grounded And it makes you authentic So what I've always prided myself And I was talking to my wife The other day I am very happy With how we've gone about Doing things That we haven't changed Who we are We haven't said Oh yes This is You know We're going to pursue something Just for the interest of funding or commercialization, that is part of it. But I don't feel as if the engagements that we've had thus far have been so um, focused on those areas that we're losing what our vision is or what our values are. And and I think finding people who you can either share that with them, and even instances I've been in meetings where it's not a value that they probably came in with but after i'm done talking to them they're like that's a great idea that's a great vision that's a great value so bring people up to your level and that's how we've always done that you know bringing people up to our level as well never going down to anyone's level because at the end of the day you're on a higher mission to serve people and if you're doing the bidding of serving people. You should never, never compromise, never compromise your values for others.
0: Yeah. Back to being victorious, right? That's ultimately that's the end goal. And uh, and that's the way to do it. Well, thank you. This has been so insightful. What is the best place is easy for people to learn more about you or learn about the mill?
1: Sure. So um, I think I don't know the exact link, but you just type in the Media Innovation Lab, University of Miami. Okay. It's there. We'll find if it. If not, people can reach out to me at LinkedIn. Um, they can reach out to me on Twitter. They can reach out to me um, on Instagram at satius at, at Seishas, dr um, or send me an email. Um, we really want. Here's the deal. This is not an easy thing. This is not the mill thing. We're trying to create this moment into a movement. And in order for that to happen, we need as many like-minded people. And if you're not like-minded, I promise you, after chatting with us for 10 minutes, you will become like-minded. We need people to be on this mission and on this vision that we're trying to, 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 to create. So yes, feel free to reach out to me and they can reach out to you as well too, Rachel, um, because you know exactly where I am and you know how best to reach out to me. So thank you so, so much. This has been quite a treat. And I I mean, as I said to you, this has been very therapeutic for me and you know, really appreciate this. It's 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 great to pause and and to think and to reflect. And not many of us get this because we're so much kind of packed in this vacuum of COVID that we kind of lose, you know, kind of a touchstone to the relevance of other things. And so thank you so much for just, you know, allowing me to be part of this fantastic journey that you're on.
0: Thank you. Thanks for being on today. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to the Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends.